0: You are listening to a podcast from West Hill United Church, located in Scarborough, Ontario, Canada. These podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our listeners, volunteers, and members of our community. To donate, go to our website, www.westhill.net, and click on the Canada Helps button, or go to www.westhill.net forward slash donate.
1: Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you, Scott. Good morning, West Hill. Good morning. morning. Uh, For those of you visiting, my name is Deb Ellis, and I'll be assisting with the service this morning along with Scott, who will be conducting on this Labor Day Sunday morning. And uh, we have a guest speaker this morning, our very own Steve Watson, will be bringing the, the message or the perspective to us. Uh, and if you are visiting our minister, Greta Vosper is on her final week of holidays this Sunday, so she's returning to the podium next Sunday, so we'll look forward to that. We wish to acknowledge that we're on the traditional territory of the Mississaugas of the new Credit First Nations lands, which lands were previously occupied by the Seneca and Huron-Wendat First Nations.
2: What we all have in common in this room is not our opinions. There may be differences of opinion in the room there it is not uh, that we all have the same common musical taste that could not possibly be the case um, and it is not our, our political party it is not our past it's not our experience it's not our background it's not our preferences and it's not who we like or don't like it's that we are all members of the web of life and that does not differentiate us between, uh, with anyone outside the building. We're all on that web. And that's what we ground ourselves on. And I, I come from a background that did divide people into saved and unsaved, very clearly. And, and, but and under that still was the fact that everyone is a member of the web of life. And we celebrate that and ground our factual, well, whatever we build, it, we build on that fact. And then we just, what we also have in common, I I hope, is that we all love perfectly throughout our week, perfectly in every relationship. Uh, No, that is not what we have in common. At least I don't have that in common with you. What we have in common is that we're trying. We're trying to love in all the categories of our lives a little bit better than we did before. And the reason we gather together is not only to center ourselves back into that, which we can drift away from so easily, but also to to gain some wisdom through a word, through something in the song, through a a reading, through the message, through a conversation in the lounge that helps us live a little more wisely with that commitment to love.
1: Uh, The readings chosen for today are um, a series of quotes from Martin Luther King, Jr., they are as follows. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. Power without love is reckless and abusive. And love without power Power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. And justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. Isn't that beautiful? And finally, if you lose hope, somehow you lose the vitality that keeps moving. You lose that courage to be, that quality that helps you go on in spite of it all. And so t- and so today, I still have a dream. Offered as wisdom for the journey, may we walk in its light.
2: I don't know anyone more qualified from amongst us to turn and with us share uh, thoughts, ideas, commitments and challenge on the topic of work, on the topic of labor, but even wider than that on the topic of justice for all. Whatever your political ilk, whatever your opinion of anything to do with labor and union and politics and people, what Steve says and what he has done qualifies him to speak to our hearts on this topic so Steve would you please come and we usually you know applaud a guest speaker so why don't we applaud him
0: as he comes anyways. well it's always good that the applause happens first because <laughs> it might not happen after no I'm just I'm just kidding Okay, so this is uh, this little talk I've actually written, uh, because there's a point to the fact that it's actually written. This is a tribute to Labor Day by way of a personal story, and the importance of telling our stories in writing. So tomorrow is Labor Day, and as I've done a, on this occasion before, I'm going to pay tribute to what Labor Day celebrates, and that's the contributions of working people and their organizations trade unions to the betterment of our society. In doing so, I'm tempted to uh, rhyme off a lot of statistics, as I've done when I've spoken to university classes, and uh, you know, I could I could point out that countries with a high degree of unionization uh, usually have a much fairer and more equitable distribution of income and stronger social programs. Um, I could point out that something that I just read in the Toronto Star on Thursday in an op-ed by Linda McQuaig that 26 individuals 26 individuals own as much wealth on our planet as half the entire world's population that's 3.8 billion people now I ask you if uh, you had to bargain with one of those 26 individuals what your chances of uh, of of getting a fair deal might be because of that imbalance of power. I might also point out something else that uh, Linda McQuaig uh, brought to my attention, and that is that 87 families in Canada between 2012 and 2016 watched their net worth grow by 800 $800 million dollars. That's not as a group, of 87 families, but each one of those families saw their net worth increase by $800 million in four years. And an individual Canadian worker standing up to bargain with one of those families might find it a little bit difficult if they didn't have an organization. Um, Now, you might say that, uh, well, Steve, you're being a little bit unkind to the rich and the super powerful (laughs) Uh, because didn't they they gain their wealth by their own effort and ingenuity well perhaps in many cases they did but uh, they also had a lot of help um, from the collective effort of millions and millions of workers who we pay to educate by the way uh, through our taxes so we, pl- we provide these people with, a, with, a, with an educated labor force. Um, but I did find another interesting fact in Linda McQuaig's article, and that is that uh, 53% of the super-rich in Canada actually inherit, inherited their wealth. Now, um, inheriting for a living uh, does take a lot of patience. <laughs> <laughs> But it doesn't take a lot of ingenuity, (laughs) unless, of course, you're reading an Agatha Christie novel where, you know, all the rival heirs are plotting to do each other in, (laughs) and then it does take some ingenuity, if you're not going to get caught. Um, So all these things were brought to my attention by Linda McQuaig, who referred to a book by Thomas Piketty, I don't know quite how to pronounce that. I should. I speak French, but I don't know how to pronounce his particular name very well. Anyway, Thomas is his, would be his first name. He wrote a book called Capital in the 21st Century, and the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives is a good place to go to see how the inequities in our society are actually getting worse, not better. So we need to redress those inequities and we we need power to do it. And and one of the quotes by Dr. King this morning alluded to the fact that that love alone by itself is not enough. Love has to be accompanied by power to actually affect change. Anyway, um, if statistics could change the world, if bringing statistics to the attention of people could change the world, now we would have changed it a long time ago, correct? I mean, Deb, you know that. Yes. You know how, how hard it is to just keep telling people the story of climate change, and it's usually statistical information. So statistics could change the world, we wouldn't be looking at such, we wouldn't be staring at such outrageous facts as the ones that, that Linda McQuaig included in her article on uh, Thursday. Uh, where she was talking about the need for a wealth tax. Um, so I thought I'd tell a story instead that might illustrate the value of the trade union movement. And it's, it's a very personal story. And I have to tell it from the point of view, uh, not only as an eyewitness, but actually as a participant. Now, when I told this story to John Cartwright, who's the president of the Labor Council, um, He asked me immediately, he said, Steve, did you write that down? And I said, no. And he he would have said after that, well, Steve, you're just like all the rest. And I would have said, what do you mean by all the rest? And he would have said, well, over the 20 years that I've been president of the Labor Council, he would, as if he's speaking directly to me, he, I've met Dozens if not hundreds of trade union activists like you who've done something in your in the community that had a positive impact but you don't write the stories down and I say I would say to John I said look John there's a there's a there's a there's a premium on modesty uh, on humility and a huge social sanction against self-congratulation right you don't want to see people standing up here, patting themselves on the back. And then he would have said to me, Steve, we pay a big price for that modesty. Um, it's, the labor movement is under attack. Workers are under attack. And maybe it's high time that we started to tell our stories. Okay? So put the modesty aside and tell your story. And put it in writing. And I would say to him, okay... I'll tell my story, and I'll even submit it to you. I'll even send it to you for publication. If you go back to those other hundred, or two hundred, or three hundred trade union activists you talked to over the last twenty years, and you collect their stories and you get them in writing, and I'll submit mine because if mine's the only story that's going to appear in your book, <laughs> it's going to look a little bit exaggerated. And if it was only one in ten, it wouldn't be in right relation. It wouldn't. It, it wouldn't be in proportion. To its true significance, but if it had two or three hundred friends i wouldn 't mind submitting the story so i 'm going to tell you the story, and I have to preface it by saying you 're going to hear a lot of the i pronoun here because I have to say it I have to tell you what what happened as I saw it and of the things that that I did, uh, but I want to kind of provide you a little antidote to when you start to gag on that focus on me I'd like to uh, do a little bit of preventative medicine here (laughs) listen for the names of the other people in the story there are a lot and listen for the evidence of the social forces that are at play they're much bigger than any one individual and you might have guessed of course that the trade union that I belong to is one of those social forces that's involved in this story, or else I wouldn't be telling it. But there are other social forces involved, and they are interesting. Um, and I actually had to think about it even as late as last night. Started add I started to add more to the list as I really, as I really thought about it. So here's the story. Now back at the turn of the century, there was a by-election for a school trustee, there was a vacancy on the school board and the the vacancy was in North Etobicoke. So John Cartwright, the president of the Labour Council, put out a call to trade union and community activists in North Etobicoke to come together and see if we could uh, find a candidate to run for that seat. And he thought that if we were able to elect a progressive person, we might shift the balance of votes on the on the school board in favor of those who wanted to take a tougher stand against the education cuts that were being brought down by the provincial government at the time. So through after some trial and error, we did find a candidate, and his name was Stan Nemiroff. And he was a retired uh, university professor, professor of education, actually, who, uh, who taught at a university in Montreal. And we campaigned for him, and we actually got him elected. And he won the subsequent regular election. He wanted his seat back in the subsequent election. And, and in the course of that campaign, I met a guy named Saeed Diwali. Now Saeed uh, is a guy who came to Canada from Somalia as a refugee many, many years ago. But when I met him, he was the plant chairperson, the union chairperson at a factory in downtown Toronto. And as it turns out, he was also the president of a community association of Somali families at Jamestown, which is a low-income community, uh, right in the center of of Rexdale. Now, what Said and I had in common, besides the fact that we belonged to the same union, was that uh, we both had a vision. That we were doing more, when working on this election campaign to elect a school trustee, we saw that as only one part of a much bigger vision. That we, we we had a political project, if you will. We wanted to see people who were underrepresented um, and under empowered um, build their capacity to art- articulate their own demands and press their own issues, find their own voice. But but Saeed brought it to my attention that you know a vision needs. Practical steps to tangible results for people, or else it's just a vision. It's just, it's, just, it's just daydreaming. So he said, Steve, why don't you come to Jamestown and help me and my organization, the Horn of Africa Community Development Association, uh, build an after-school program. Now, an after-school program was a priority for the community because uh, their kids were not doing very well in school. In fact, there was a very low graduation rate um, in the high schools from that community. And this could lead to some tragic results. The kind of thing that you read about in the Toronto Star, on the TV every day, you see uh, the tragic results of these situations where uh, where young men are in serious uh, trouble with the law. So they really wanted to change this. And I said, well, Saeed, all you have to do is invite me to a meeting of your committee. You must, a, you must have a team of people that you've tasked with the job of building this after-school program. And so he invited me to a meeting. He said, it's at the Elm Bank Community Center on such and such a date, such and such a time. I can't remember the date, but I have a very vivid memory <laughs> of the occasion at the Elm Bank Community Center. As I was walking down the stairs to the meeting, I had I imagined in my mind that I was going to see five or six people sitting around a table having an animated discussion about how they're going to build this after-school program. And, uh, you know, like any committee meeting that we might have here at the church, you know. But when I stepped into the meeting space, I didn't see five or six people sitting around a table, having a discussion, animated or otherwise, I saw practically the entire Somali community at Jamestown, dozens and dozens of families, grandparents, parents, their children, from toddlers to university students. And as soon as Saeed sees me walk into the room, he leaps to his feet and he says, attention everyone, I want to introduce you to brother Steve Watson. He is a gentleman who's going to teach our children. <laughs> and the men came out to me, men from Somalia, have a particular way of greeting you when they're welcoming you into the fold and, and saying, You're one of us. And George is going to help me here. This is how they greeted you. Yeah. I'll tell you why. Thank you, George. Okay, these people are very intelligent. They learned eons ago that shaking hands is actually a very effective way of communicating infectious disease, correct? I think we have a doctor in our midst. (laughs) But it's also a very, very, very engaging way of saying, welcome, you're one of us. So I said, well, these people have just placed a huge expectation on me. What am I going to do? Steve, what are you going to do now? So uh, I said, okay, there's only one solution to this. I got to go on a campaign and recruit as many volunteers as I possibly can. I can't possibly do this. So I went to my union, to local unions, where I knew the leadership, I went to the education department where I worked, the education department in my union. I went to the labor council. I went to um, the Unitarian Fellowship in Northwest Toronto that Arlene and I were attending at the time. Unitarians are very much like us, by the way. They, they don't have a creed. They don't much refer to scripture. But they have a set of values and principles. Perhaps that's what's more important. And... um Now, I've got to jump ahead about 17 or 18 years and tell you that any time I walk through Jamestown or through the community, the vicinity of the community today, it's very likely that a young man who's about 25 or 30 will come up to me and ask me, say, hey, Steve, how's Aubrey? Now, Aubrey was a guy who heard my talk at the Auto Workers Local Union in, uh, in Brampton, And uh, I was of course there making the pitch about the need for volunteers at this Horn of Africa Community Development Association after school program. And um, he was a man who came from Jamaica many, many years ago. In fact, he was in his mid 70s at the time. And uh, retirees can attend general meetings of the locals long as they're not voting on any workplace issues, they can vote on other issues. And uh, he comes up to me after the meeting and he says, Brother Watson, he says, I heard your talk about this Horn of Africa program that you got going at uh, Jamestown. But what really caught my attention were the words Elmbank Community Center. He says, I live just a few blocks from that place, just a stone's throw from that place. Do you think I can volunteer? Well, I got to tell you that within a, in the next few years, that uh, he became revered in that uh, in, in that community he was um, he would take a young boy by the hand and I don't mean that just li- by he would take a young boy in hand and by the hand He w- I don't mean that just just uh, figuratively I mean that quite literally when I saw him working with a young lad he would have his little hand in his <laughs> and, he'd be, and he'd be helping him you know, form his letters and uh, then his words and then his sentences and then reading them, and uh, mothers would bring their boys to him, and after a month, uh, a teacher would be saying to that mother, "Oh, there's a, a miracle's been performed here. Uh, this kid is up to grade level. we th- We thought we were going to have to put him in a special program, but now he's functioning at the same level as all the rest of the kids. So what happened? Well, the mir- there was no miracle. The miracle was, was Aubrey. And um, I organized a surprise birthday party for him. After a few years, I said, this guy needs some recognition. Um, the, entire, the, the executive board of his local union came down to the Elmbank Community Center. This guy was always a rank-and-file guy. And for him to see the executive board, the elected leadership of his local union there, and the workplace leadership from the plant that he worked at all his life, that meant a lot to him. So, um, now I want to tell you that at the, uh, just uh, not too long ago, I was at the meeting space of the Horn of Africa program at uh, at, the, at, uh, at Jamestown, the Horn of Africa meeting space. And I saw they had a little collection of books, a little library, and I walked over to take a look, a, look, a closer look, because so I'm always interested in the books people have. And it turned out there was an inscription there. It said, Burl Gilbertson Memorial Library. Well, Burl was uh, a woman who heard my talk at the Unitarian Fellowship about the need for volunteers. And she was a woman who had earned a university degree fairly late in life. She was very proud of that. And uh, she came to the program. The girls who had a, a, their sights set on university, or the, and even young women who were in university would flock to her. They would go right past me. <laughs> and they would flock to her. And, uh, and she loved those girls. Uh, She loved those young women. Uh, So it was was very touching to see that uh, this association, the Horn of Africa Association, had named uh, a library in her memory. And then there was Cheryl Krasinowski, the director of the department that I was working in, the education department. And she not only brought herself, but she brought her entire family, her husband, and they would come down as often as they could which was hard because of her workload but after about by about 2003 despite these remarkable people and i only mentioned three of the volunteers because there were others that came from the labor council the union the unitarians i just mentioned three to give you an idea of the kind of difference that they were making in the community but after, by about 2003, I had a decision. I, I, I looked at this situation. And I said, Steve, I said, we've run up against certain limitations. There are certain things we're ne- we're not going to get past these limitations. So I talked to the to the leadership of this association, and I said, you know, we just don't have the, the We don't have full time staff. Uh, we don't have money. Um, and there's one there's one problem that, that that is very serious. We need to unite this entire community. The entire community of Jamestown and its surroundings need to be united under one umbrella. And the uh, and uh, they're not going to come under a banner that says Horn of Africa. There are just too many people from other parts of the world. And this was a hard thing for them to hear. They thought, after all this work I had done and we had done together that somehow I was, they almost took it like a betrayal. But but I said, look, there is an organization that has money, that has full-time staff, that has resources. And and they said, where is that? And I said, it's at Regent Park. It's the uh, Pathways Education. It's the Pathways Education program at Regent Park. And um, what had happened there was that the, the moms at Regent Park, round about 1999, I believe, round about then, round about the year 1999, 2000, had had enough of the despair in the community, and said, we're gonna organize a program. We're gonna get, a, we're gonna get some funding, we're gonna find the funding to do it, and we're gonna organize a program so that our, our kids will start graduating from high school. And um, they put together a program with some help, with a lot of experts. They put together a program that involved uh, mentoring. What was innovative about this program was that they put the priority on mentoring, because not all the kids need to be tutored. But they had a program that, that put the that, that put the mentoring at the center of it, uh, like career development activities, talking about discuss- issues in the community, and then tutoring to help them, you know, with subjects they were having difficulty with. And then there was the financial incentives uh, and uh, and advocacy for the kids. So within a few years, you could see the results. The attendance at school started to go up, the earned credits started to go up, the marks started to go up, and this was quite obvious. Even before they they had a a final graduating class, you could see that this was heading in the right direction. So I told the parents at at, um, at Jamestown, the Somali community at Jamestown, we need to have a discussion with these people. And and to the credit of those, uh, the Horn of Africa people, um, they put aside their pride and said, okay, let's meet them. So I went down to uh, Regent Park, to the Regent Park Community Health Center, and I asked uh, Denny Briggs and Norm Rowan to come up and visit us at Jamestown to see what we were up to. And Norm and Jen- Denny were the ones who designed the program. They were the, they're the, they were the intellectual authors, the geniuses behind that program. And Norm said to me, he says, Steve, you're totally transparent. He said, I can see right through you. He says, you're not asking us to come up to Jamestown just to have a discussion, just to see what you're doing. He says, you want us to establish a branch up there, a, a satellite project, a pathways at Jamestown. I said, well, you're absolutely right about that. And he said, um, but he said, you know, there's one thing you've got to be aware of, the, um, we have not made the decision to establish any branches or any satellite projects in other communities. And I said, but, 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 the writing is on the wall. You can see with the success that you're having here, it's only a matter of time before you establish uh, projects in other communities like Region Park that have the same challenges. And I said, well, be that as it may, writing on the wall or not, we haven't made that decision. We're a very formal organization. We don't do things the way you do it. You don't. We don't just go and improvise the way you do. Um, so, but they did agree to come up, and the day that they were to come up to 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 uh, Jamestown, it just happened to be the day after that big power outage that we had in the middle of August of two thousand and three. Remember that was those two or three days when we were having block parties. <laughs> <laughs> to barbecue all the perishable stuff in our freezers because there was no power. And uh, individual citizens were out in the uh, intersections <laughs> directing traffic <laughs> because, the, because the traffic lights weren't working. Well, this was actually the day after. And the power was back on. Except that the guy who uh, should have opened up the Elm Bank Community Center never got the memo. So we have hundreds of kids standing around the Elm Bank Community Center with their parents and tutors, but no community center because the place is locked. Now the parent said to me, he says, well, Steve, I guess we should send the kids home. And I said, no, 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 no. Big, big mistake, big mistake. Let's have the kids sit on the grass in circles with their tutors, and get those books out that we got from Scholar's Choice, those exercise books. And, um, and by the way, get the pizzas out because we don't want these kids to run away. And within a few minutes, Norm and Denny pull up into the parking lot. <laughs> and they step out of the car, they look at this scene. And what do they see? They see a park filled with kids sitting on the grass doing schoolwork. It's the middle of August and they don't even need to be in school and they don't even have a facility. They look at this and they say, Steve, says, you guys here at Jamestown are better organized than we were at Regent Park when we first started Pathways. Now all you need is a program. Well, that was 2003 and uh, in 2005, a committee was established at the Rexdale Community Health Center uh, to begin to begin the process of establishing a pathways education, a pathways education program at Jamestown, and it was the first site. And it was the first site um, outside of Regent Park for the Pathways of Education, the first satellite project. And in 2007, we had our first cohort of students. In 2007, the graduation rate at Jamestown, the high school graduation rate was 43%. Uh, today, it's 80%. Well, as of two years ago, it was 80% because uh, we only have the statistics from two years ago. Uh, but it's been rising. And, um, and one of the remarkable things about this, what this project achieves, is it doesn't just get kids out of high school, but the retention rate at, at universities and colleges is actually higher than the provincial average. Now think about that. These are kids that come from impoverished backgrounds. They're facing all kinds of systemic barriers, racism, discrimination, all kinds of issues like that. And they're achieving a higher retention rate than than the provincial average. That is kids from Pathways communities. That probably speaks more about the effectiveness of this program than anything else I I could point to. Because, of course, the point wasn't just to have them graduate from high school. It was to get them on to Uh, uh, a path that would lead to a brighter future. And of course, along with that, means a whole lot less violence in the community, a whole lot less trouble with the law. And um, in 2011, I retired. Actually, one of the things that was in the back of my mind, taking early retirement at the age of 60, was I said to myself, oh, you can go back to Jamestown And there won't be this job in your way. (laughs) So I went back to the Pathways office at Jamestown. And guess what? Nobody there knew me. (laughs) The entire staff had changed between 2007 and 2011. I had actually gotten quite busy in my job in the last five years. I often joke that it took uh, 20 years for me to learn how to do my job. (laughs) but I actually became very productive in the last five years, and they kept piling more and more projects on me. Um, Even the LGBT community came to me and asked me to write the curriculum for their conference. And I said, "Uh, you know that I'm a straight guy, right? And they said, that doesn't matter to us. It's just we want an activist conference. (laughs) We're tired of these academic exercises. We want an activist conference. Anyway, so 2011, I retire, and I go to the office, and nobody knows me. And I'm thinking, years later, I thought of this. I thought, I thought to myself, I said, Steve, what, did, what, did, what were they thinking when you showed up? I <laughs> said, so here's this old guy that nobody knows, and he doesn't look like anybody in the community. And he says, I want to tutor high school students. <laughs> this can't be good, this is gonna be bad. <laughs> but uh, Medina Wasuge, the executive director, she was very kind and she said, she said, sir, I said, all you have to do is go get your police check. And, um, and so I did. And it uh, turns out that there was this uh, watermark that went across the page from bottom left to top right, C-L-E-A-R, and I looked at that and I said, Steve, after a lifetime of uh, participating in uh, road blockades, plant occupations, takeovers of government offices, uh, you don't have a criminal record. <laughs> I said, okay. Um, I, I brought it to them and they said, that's fine. I, we can see you're not a criminal. You can come to our orientation session and I've been uh, going to uh, Pathways Tutoring for every week, four days a week, since 2011. And if you know your integers, that means nine years, not eight. Um, and I just got a letter or a, a memo of, uh, last week. inviting invited me back for another year. Um, now, that's my story, but... There is, um, and you might think that this is all about Steve Watson. That would be a big mistake. I just want to run through some of the names that you heard, okay? There was John Cartwright, the president of the Labor Council, who brought people like me and Saeed together. I would never have met Saeed if it hadn't been for John. There was Stan Emeroff, the guy we got elected. There was Aubrey McNaught, who you heard about. There was uh Beryl Gilbertson, who you've heard about um, there was uh, Denny Briggs and Norm Rowan, oh by the way, there was also another guy that i I didn't mention. Ahmed Diwali came from within the Horn of Africa and he was known as the Math department and I was known as the English department, but he was he was the the math guy. We had uh Buzz Hargrove i didn't mention I should have He was the guy who, when he read my memo about the Pathways Program at Regent Park, decided to go check it out. This was around about the year 2000. And he so fell in love with the program that he convinced the uh, board of directors of the Social Justice Fund to uh, donate $100,000 a year to the program. Now that was actually a small contribution compared to the corporate ones. I mean, you know, the bank robbers of the 1930s, you ask them why, why they rob banks, they would say, well, that's because that's where the money is. <laughs> the banks have a lot more money than unions. But, but Pathways liked the fact that they were allied with the Auto Workers Union because we had a lot of influence, political influence, and we talked to levels of government about that program. And, and, and I think, I believe that we were influential, along with the corporations, in securing uh, f- provincial and federal government funding for that program, which put it on a more stable footing. You heard about um, so many people, but I want to talk about the, uh, and I want to mention Medina Wasugi, Medina Wasugi, who who invited me back, even though I, when I came back uh, to Jamestown, everybody had forgotten about me. So, uh, the social forces involved in this. I have to make. I have made a list. I want to make sure I get it correct. Okay. I want to mention these people. These these are the social forces. The Somali parents at Jamestown. The union activists. Uh, people of two faiths, Islam and Unitarian. Very different. Religious outlooks. You couldn't find more differences in religion and religious outlook than those two groups. And yet they were united in one common project and motivated by their beliefs to raise up a community in crisis. Um, the whole community of Jamestown, once we had a unifying project, the Pathways Program, the parents at Regent Park, uh, who built one of the most innovative and successful after-school programs in the world? The staff of the Rexdale Community Health Centre that gave us the, the uh, administrative umbrella in which to, that we can operate under. The staff of the Pathways Program, the union and corporate donors, and the provincial and federal governments that fund this program. But my story also includes me, okay? And I tell this story because if there's any one story that I could tell that I would want to be remembered for, it's this one. That's the reason why I tell it. And it's also because it pays tribute uh, to the influence, the capacity of the movement that I spent my whole life building the trade union movement to to affect positive change in the community, because there's not a single thing that I could have done in that story. I could not have accomplished a single thing, not not one iota of anything that I did if I hadn't been constantly accessing the resources of a union that was not only powerful, but had a social conscience. Now, I want to say something. This is a little transition to uh, a little segue to the importance of telling your own story. I'm sure that this story, if I told it right, would inspire or provoke somebody to want to tell their own story. But I also want to talk about the importance of putting it in writing. And the um, the best and most efficient way I can I can motivate this idea is to just ask you to go to WNED, to uh, the public uh, television station that that comes out of Buffalo, and just watch that show called Finding Your Roots. If you watch that show, you'll see celebrities come on. They're all famous people. But they have one thing in common besides their celebrity. They had no idea who their ancestors were. (laughs) And they access the awesome research team that this guy, uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr., the host of the show, has at his fingertips to, uh, to find out who their people were. And they can produce a story. They can produce uh, quite an, uh, uh, a wonderful story of, of, who, of their ancestral background. But one thing is often missing from those stories. Their ancestors very seldom, almost never, wrote down a story they can only infer or guess from the facts what their stories might have been but if you write a story the people who will most appreciate it and this is counterintuitive won't be the, your your sons and daughters you can say wait wait a minute won't be my son my sons and daughters they won't appreciate it you know why they won't they won't be so enthusiastic about it because they'll say, ah, oh, I've got to listen to that story one more time. <laughs> I've heard all their stories. The people the, the people who will appreciate your story are your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. And the descendants going forward in the time, people that you won't meet. They will appreciate it. And so... How do you do it? The bigger question is not only why you sh- not just why you should do this, but but how how are you going to do this? Yeah, how? That's a tougher question. But I would suggest to you that there's a way to do it. Form a, a little group called the Storytellers Society, or the Yarn Spinners Circle, or the or the Liars Club whatever you want to call it, and help each other write the stories, put them in writing. So I'm going to close by saying that uh, you heard a story today that pays tribute to the labor movement, but also I want you to to uh, think about the importance of writing your story. Just like John Cartwright said to me, he says, Steve, you gotta write that one down. And um, so I'll leave you with two thoughts. The next time you hear somebody running down the trade union movement, don't quote a bunch of statistics about the value of unions and collective bargaining. Tell them, I heard a story. I heard a story one day. Do you want to hear it? And if you can't remember the details, tell another story about why people need power, why people need power to affect change. And I hope you enjoyed my story today, and I hope it, I hope it moves you to not only tell your stories, but to put them in writing. Thank you very much. I've got copies, by the way. (laughs) Can you give me 30 seconds? Yeah, go
2: ahead. Just just 30, and just 30. (laughs) Thank you, George. After every name that Steve mentioned, we could have said in this abundant blessing we share the joy, but I would like to just say it for what Steve has shared with us of himself. In this abundant blessing, Steve, we share the joy. I'm going to ask you to stay seated as we do our sending song. Um, well, you'll, you'll be, you'll be uh, requested to stand when the words come. I'm just going to play this as, as we end. Um, watch the pictures relate to them, and then we will stand and sing a song that I think sums up what, what still is relevant, although it was written a long time ago. grounded in life, guided by love, and growing in wisdom.
0: Possible By the generous support of our listeners, volunteers, and members of our community. To donate, go to our website, www.westhill.net, and click on the Canada Helps button, or go to www.westhill.net forward slash donate.